This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, this week we're going to hear about the dream of aspirational healthcare. Our guest this week is Daryl Moon. And what is aspirational healthcare? It's a customer focused preventative healthcare system committed to supporting and advising patients throughout their health journey. And we have to think about what does influence health? I mean, we've all heard the stat that 75 to 80% of a person's health and well being is determined from social determinants that fall outside of the traditional healthcare system. So it's not surprising that almost 90% of everything that is spent on healthcare can be traced back to an individual's lifestyle, behaviors, and choices. And it's absolutely mind-boggling to think of how little of what is spent on healthcare is focused on helping people make better choices and winning the battles to change behaviors. Too much of the healthcare system is focused on putting a patch on a symptom. Instead of really finding and solving the root cause of the problem, there is a better way, a more aspirational model that that can actually rebalance the focus to better support population health. Our guest this week is Daryl Moon, CEO of Orient, a company that changes the dynamics of healthcare and gives employers control over the ever-increasing costs of the healthcare benefits they offer their employees. In starting his company, Daryl believed that engaging individuals in the management of their own health was a key that had to be inserted back into the economic equation of healthcare. His work with Orion has led him on a value-based journey where he's been able to study the best healthcare systems in the world, like the NUCA system of care created by the South Central Foundation in Alaska. They are an aspirational healthcare system and the only healthcare system that has won the U.S. President's Malcolm Baldrige Award for quality twice. We're going to talk a lot about the NUCA system of care in this interview because they're showing the rest of the U.S. that healthcare can be so much better and cost half as much. Well, Daniel, I, I'm excited for this conversation. The NUCA system of care is an aspirational healthcare model and they are winning the race to value. 
instead of having a more traditional deficit-based healthcare model that focuses on the science of doing something to an individual, aspirational healthcare systems like NUCA spend 75% or more of their time focusing on the individual and the ownership and management of their own health. And Daryl Moon has this dream of a better tomorrow with American healthcare. And it all starts with aspirational goals and that aspiration is real. So let's hear from him today as he joins us in this week's Race to Value. Daryl Moon, welcome to the Race to Value. We're so happy to have you on the show this week. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Well, Daryl, I just wanted to tell you how proud we are at the ACLC for being a supporting organization for the upcoming Aspirational Healthcare Conference on July 14th and 15th. And I know you've been really busy putting this conference together. And as I understand, the intent of this conference is to highlight South Central Foundation's NUCA system of care in Alaska and other similar healthcare models that achieve much better health outcomes at half the cost. So I thought that would be a great place to start our conversation today. Love it. Yes. I've been in healthcare for my entire career, probably close to 40 years. And, and I've always been on the innovation, what's the best way to do things. And when I came across seven or eight months ago, a podcast describing this NUCA system of care, I'm like, why have I never heard this before? How can the best healthcare, I didn't even know there was a best healthcare system in the world. And then to learn that there's one right here in the United States and nobody knows about it. It's like, okay, we need to put on a conference with them to highlight their successes and let everybody in this country know there is a better way to do healthcare. We don't need to settle for this dysfunctional, deficit-based, expensive healthcare system that we all get so used to. Well, Daryl, you make a great point, and I, I've had the, the same level of pleasure in learning about them. We had Dave Chase on a couple of months ago, and he made reference to them, and you know, and I've been doing my reading, and it's really a fascinating type of model. I mean, you have the South Central Foundation, which is an Alaska Native-owned nonprofit healthcare organization, and they serve approximately 65,000 Alaska Native and American Indian people living in the Anchorage area. And the South Central Foundation, they instituted this system-wide transformation of care. And this has been a decade or more in the making, but they re they're really thinking about increasing the quality and the adaptability of their programs and holding providers accountable in the patients. And that they're in charge of really designing and delivering healthcare in a way that is going to have that patient accountability and deliver value. And as I understand the name NUCA, which is what they call their aspirational system of care, it's based on an Alaska native word, which means strong and giant structures and living things. And it's just been a great story for the industry here at the ACLC. We're thinking a lot about this model and we're even working on a case study with them. And thank you for making that introduction. But I know you've been reading a lot the work of Dr. Doug Eby and really talking about the requirements of this ideal health system from the view of the customer. Could you speak a little bit about that and what you've learned and what our listeners should know about the NUCA system of care? I'd love to. In fact, I'd, I'd love to read to you what those requirements are from this group. And, and it's such a powerful statement. So bear with me. There is a myth in modern medicine that if we remove waste and apply Six Sigma to make things more reliable, we will get better health. Well, that is simply not true. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. That's not to say that we don't need more Six Sigma. 
in the offering of healthcare services, particularly in the outpatient area, because we do. But the fact that that alone will create better health, that's just simply not true. The variables that are under the customer owner's control drive about 90% of the determinants of how people get chronic conditions and then how well they live with them, which then in turn drives about 70% of the total cost of modern medicine. The power to make the changes to live well is in the hands of the customer owner. We do not give them that power, they already have it. Therefore, our skill set needs to be the ability to influence them through partnering, education, cheerleading, supporting, mentoring, and coaching more than labs, x-rays, pills, diagnoses, and treatment plans. That is the fundamental premises of the NUCA system of care. The NUCA system has trained their people to be partnering influencers rather than mandating diagnosticians and treatment planners. Here's their value proposition. Is the person who encounters us doing something different after they encounter us? If medicine has not convinced them to do their part, we have not added value. We have to be extremely good at coaching, advising, cajoling, and encouraging. This is our core skill set. Medical people are not trained in that very well. They are trained to be diagnosticians as well as lab and x-ray ordering people. The core thing is to get people to do something different. In medicine, we select the wrong people for managing chronically ill patients. We select academically smart people. We have an improperly skilled workforce. We have to give our people new skill sets and then figure out how to bring in other people who have particularly good skill sets at this business of coaching, mentoring, and influencing people. That's from Dr. Douglas Eby, VP of Medical Services for the South Central Foundation's NICA System of Care. That's a powerful statement. Daryl, in this broken fee-for-service model of healthcare that we have and that you've referenced, we've become all too accustomed with this deficit-based health that is reactive to problems instead of preventing them. The idea of fall off the cliff and we'll fix you We'll solve a problem. We'll treat a disease or prescribe a treatment. And what I love about your work is that you're actually inspiring employers to lead a movement towards aspirational-based healthcare models that put fences at the top of the cliff. They prevent a problem. They avoid the disease. They inspire behavioral change at the individual level and celebrate success along the way. A few would argue that the majority of what we spend today on healthcare can be traced back to lifestyle and unhealthy behaviors. It seems the healthcare system has done little to innovate or focus on helping people engage in complex behavior changes to adopt healthier habits. And your vision for an aspirational healthcare system in which the primary focus is helping people live healthier, more fulfilling lives, this is a powerful one and one that resonates with me. Imagine where we could be today if healthcare actually focused on patients' health and happiness. As we look to make this shift towards models that better support the individual in taking ownership of their own health care, you've been clear that the opportunity to lead this movement resides squarely with large employers. Can you explain why the transformational force to a more customer-centric healthcare ecosystem is more likely to come from the employer community? And what can CEOs do to realign the healthcare system so it actually works for them to provide what they want, like a healthy and productive workforce? Love that question. Therein lies my passion in life. <laughs> and I'll share a little bit of why that's such a passion. My career started as a hospital administrator. 
And I had the opportunity to run 10 different hospitals all across the country. And I was very steeped in Edwards Deming philosophy as a continuous quality improvement, the whole idea of lean management, Six Sigma. And if you really step back and say, what is the fundamental underlying premise of continuous quality improvement? You simply say, first of all, who's the customer? And what will delight the customer? And now how do I improve processes to be able to do that on a consistent basis? How do I make improvements by getting people closer to the process? Well, we all too often in healthcare forget the very first question, who's the customer that we're trying to meet? I sat at the top of the food chain and my job was to put ambulances at the bottom of the cliff to catch, not even to catch, but just to fix people after they fell off. Well. If you step back and say, who's the real customer of this biggest industry in America, healthcare, it's not the doctors. If you look at who pays for it, it's not even the patients, although they're the benefactors of the system and there truly should be a major customer focus, but it's business leaders. Business leaders and the federal government or state governments through Medicare and Medicaid are indeed the primary customers of the healthcare system. And as I began to think about that as a hospital minister, I thought, I could no more be misaligned with my customer than I am. There is nothing about the way my job is incented, focused, promoted. Everything about my job is nothing to do with meeting my customer's needs. And that drove me nuts. It's like, how can the biggest industry in America get away without applying basic customer-focused service? And yet it does. And after I left, after running hospitals for a number of years, I said, I can no longer be a part of this broken system. I need to get involved in putting fences at the top of the cliff. So about 10 years ago, I came across a, a pretty significant organization that gets CEOs together. It's called Listage. And so I started to present to them. And I love to get in front. I'm one of the most used speakers on this topic of healthcare cost control and improving employee health. And I love to get in front of employers and say, do you realize that you are the customer of the healthcare system? And they look at me like, I am, I don't feel like it. I'm like, exactly, but whose fault is that? You can't blame the system when you don't do near enough to drive the system through market forces to get what you want. And I asked them to take a few minutes and think about as a customer, what do you want? Why are you willing to spend enormous amounts of money on this healthcare system that just keeps bulging and bulging and bulging? And they sit back and they always tell me, First and foremost, the number one reason they're willing to do it is to attract and retain top talent. It's like, number one, I want to have a benefit package that can attract for me the best talent for my company. And I say, okay, is that all you want? No, I also want a healthy, productive workforce. And and you ask, well, why do you want that? It's not because, well, because a healthy, productive workforce will keep my healthcare costs lower. It's because the health and productivity of my employees is directly tied to the satisfaction of my customer. My product going out the door is so much better when my employees are healthy and productive than when it's not. I say, well, what else do you want? Well, I want my employees satisfied with the healthcare system. They want it to be easy to use. I want them to understand how to use it and how to let it benefit their lives. And then they always say, and I don't want it to cost so much. And I say, okay, great. Now we understand what you want and it's across the board. Everybody feels the same way. Are you doing anything to incent the system to work for you to give you that. Do you give your CFO a bonus to give you profitability? 
Sure. How about your COs? They get a bonus to create efficiency? Sure. What about your salespeople? Do they get bonuses to bring in revenue? Absolutely. So have you ever recognized, incented, created bonuses for the people you put in charge of the second largest cost of doing business to give you the four things you just said you want? And after visiting with over a thousand CEOs, not a single one party does it. And I say, it starts there. You are the buyer of the healthcare system. You should be buying it in a way and creating incentives to the system where you get what you want. And not only should that benefit manager get incentives to bring you those four things, attract and retain top talent, a healthcare benefit that improves the health of your workforce, a healthcare benefit that employees are satisfied with, and a system that costs less. But they, in turn, should be going to the benefit consultant world, the insurance broker world, and saying, no longer are you going to get paid by the insurance company. You're going to get paid by me. You're going to work for me. And I'm going to pay you a consulting fee. And we're going to put part of those consulting fees at risk. And it's not going to be just to reduce healthcare costs, which most of they stop right there. It's like when I talk to CEOs, they're like, I will spend the moon to get what I want. And they do. They continually spend six, seven, eight percent more every year to get a benefit package that where they can attract and retain top talent. But they never connect the dots. And benefit consultants never connect. They're never incented to ensure that the benefits that they offer can attract and retain top talent. And they should be. And that's what I teach employers. It's not that difficult to begin to align the system to work for you. And believe me, the system's not going to bring you the idea. Why would the system want to change anything? It works well for the system. Brokers make more money. Insurance companies make more money. The healthcare system all makes more money as long as it's deficit-based and misaligned with you. You've got to drive this. It's the customer that's in, and, and they go, well, but how do I get what? First of all, just align the system to work for you. Give incentives and bonus based on people giving you what you want. And then secondarily, stop believing that you're going to find some utopia health insurance plan out there that's going to give you an aspirational healthcare system because it just doesn't exist yet. But you can go a long ways to offer an aspirational health benefit for your employees by just simply saying, look, it's my money. I'm going to take the money that I'm currently spending and I'm going to stop putting all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to say, here's the money I'm spending. I'm going to break it up into four buckets. I'm going to put a bunch of money over here into a major medical plan, which is what everybody's used to getting. But I want something there when people need those major issues. But I'm not going to put all my eggs in that basket. I'm going to come over here and put another set of money in a basket that says, I want you to have an aspirational benefit. And that starts I love the term that Nuka used, a massively powerful primary care system. Their entire system is built on an aligned primary care system. That's not what we buy when we buy major medical. So I'm going to put money aside. I'm going to put $100 or $200 a month for you to go out and get involved in your life a direct primary care practice where the physician is no longer billing fee for service. It's a subscription model, and they're focused and aligned with both me and you to help you stay healthy. Now, 
Nuka was able to get their doctors to actually be influencers. That's not the case. That's not how doctors are trained. Even if they are direct primary care physicians, you still need a component to connect with you and quite honestly, less expensive than a doctor, an influencer, like a health coach. So I'm gonna put money over here in another bucket specifically for you to use to go get a health coach involved in your life to help influence you and support you and making the changes you wanna to make to get out of the ruts that bother you to be more healthy. Now, in both of those cases, if you don't want a direct primary care physician, that's up to you. You don't have to get one. You can use your medical to get that, but you don't get the money. The money is allocated for you to have an aspirational health care benefit. And if you don't wanna spend the money, if you don't want it, you don't have to take it. Same thing with a coach. If you don't want the money, you don't have to take it. I'm not going to force you to go get an aligned relationship with a primary care practice. I'm not going to force you to go have a health coach involved in your life. But if you don't, you don't get the money. That's how. And then the fourth bucket is, is simply I'm going to put money away in an HSA or an HRA or some kind of a accepted benefit HRA to for that's going to build up over time, roll over year to year that you can use to pay for those deductibles and co-insurances that you need to, to pay through your major medical, but it builds consumerism in for you. Well, first, Daryl, I just want to say I could not agree more. And you made a, uh, an important point. Why in the heck would a systemically flawed and broken healthcare system actually try to improve itself when they make so much profit? And there's a reason why we call it the medical industrial complex. And I think employers, and, and you make it this great compelling case on why employers could be that driving force to really reimagine the healthcare system and create more aspirational markets. And we look at the employer marketplace, it clearly needs to be fixed and healthcare expenditures can no longer be looked at on the balance sheet as simply the cost of doing business. The employer market has 157 million Americans. The, the healthcare system is dysfunctional and ineffective at producing value in health. And as I understand, poor health costs employers 530 billion on top of the 880 billion that they already spend in premium dollars. And then when you have employees who spend well over a million dollars over the course of their own lifetime on healthcare, which includes foregone wages, which is what they would have earned if health insurance wasn't so astronomically expensive, there's that driving force for some type of change to happen. And there's these exemplars like Nuka that are really showing the industry that this is possible. And I wanted to draw your attention just for a moment on some other aspects of the employer-based disruption in healthcare. And there's been a lot of talk, obviously, with the large-scale transformation that was attempted by Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Case, which are three of the nation's largest, most high profile and best run companies when they have like 500 plus billion dollars in revenue between them. And they tried to tackle the problem. And many people are saying, you know, that Haven failed. And if they can't do it, then how can we possibly create a new aspirational way of delivering healthcare? And as an insider on employer-based healthcare, I wanted to, to ask you, what is your take on that show of leadership from these corporate chieftains and them sending the shot at the bow to industry, which included the insurers and the health providers and the PBMs? And really, at the end of the day, a lot of people are saying, well, nothing really got done. I mean, what is your take on what went wrong? And then what can we learn from that experiment? And are you optimistic that new approaches like what we're seeing from Amazon Care or Walmart Health or others, is that going to help move the needle here? 
I could not have been more excited a few years ago when I heard those two CEOs come out and say, enough's enough. We're not going to take this anymore. In fact, I'll, I'll reference back to the South Central Foundation 20 years ago when they said, the Congress is going to let us take over healthcare. Couldn't get any worse than it is. We're going to do this. They were not a healthcare system. They were simply 220 Native Alaskan tribes. They got together and were supporting each other in all aspects of tribal life. And, and they said, why don't, why don't we take over healthcare? And, and the CEO said, just like these other CEOs said, I'm going to expect uncompromising demand that perfect care be delivered in a perfect way for What an amazing story about how a CEO says, this is what I want, and this is what I'm going to get. Now, I love all the criticism that people give about Haven didn't work and so forth. But the bottom line is the concepts that they're building. And just because they decided to break up in terms of a formal organization, the work that Amazon Care is doing, and like you said, Walmart Health, let's put things in perspective. Why are we in this mess? What happened years ago to put us in this mess? Well, employer-sponsored group health insurance didn't exist prior to World War II. It was during World War II when the War Labor Board put this freeze on salaries, and then the IRS came along and said, hey, employers, if you want to offer health insurance to employees, we'll give you a tax deduction. And boom, within 10 years, the employer-sponsored group health insurance market took over, and more than half of all the employees in America were covered under an employer-sponsored group health plan within 10 years. It was amazing. And of course, once it got in place, it wasn't going to go away. Well, something happened about a year ago that was just as significant that now leads the way to an entire transformation of how healthcare is purchased for Americans. I'm excited to see some of the things that are happening to build upon that. And what was that? Well, it was interesting. An executive order came out that said, hey, we're not going to be able to change the Affordable Care Act, but what can we do to work within the law to create more consumerism. And Regina Herchlinger, bless her heart, grandmother of HRAs, put an article in Forbes. And it was directed to the three department heads that basically run those regulations. And it said, it's not that hard. Just create a health reimbursement account that allows people to use that money to buy health insurance. Right now, HRAs can't be used. They can be used to pay for co-pays and deductibles, but you can't use it to pay for a premium. She just put together one that does. And sure enough, a few months later, those three department heads put an article in Forbes to say that's what we're going to do. And they did it. And back at the beginning of 2020, the ICRA was born, the individual coverage HRA account. I believe that nothing will be the fundamental premise for the change than that. Why? Because now employers can still get all the benefits and pay for all the health insurance, but it gets them out of the middle of deciding what health insurance and therein lies the problem with our broken healthcare system. These CEOs and businesses who are buying group health insurance for their employees are making decisions. They're not in the weeds of the system. They're not making the system work for them. And yet, basically, their lack of involvement is why the system is so broken. Well, as employers realize that when the Amazons and the Walmarts, and there's already some innovative health insurance plans out there that are half the cost. Now, I don't believe they're going to be the megabusters like the Walmarts and the Amazons, but when Amazon Care finishes their strategy of not just offering telemedicine and virtual primary care, but builds an entire health insurance plan 
with all the innovation of concepts of aspirational healthcare and focusing on health, because that's their whole mission. We're going to focus on the customer. Customer is going to be the focus. When they offer an individual health insurance plan that's focused on the customer and cost half or significantly less than current group health insurance, as I speak to CEOs across the country, they would love nothing more than to get out of the middle of this mess. If you could offer them and they can find out that they can simply put money in an ICRA, an individual coverage health reimbursement account, and then those employees can go out in the market and buy whatever they want. And now all of a sudden that Amazon Prime membership that they belong to, they can through that Amazon Prime membership buy an individual health insurance plan that's built around them and cost them significantly less than if their employer were buying it through a group in sponsored plan we will see a mass leave. Employers would love nothing more than to get out of the middle of having to buy and choose what health plan to offer or what health plans to offer their employees. And I really see that in the next 10 years, we could see a significant shift from employer-sponsored group health insurance to employer-sponsored individual health insurance. And that's where the Amazons and the Walmarts are going to be successful. It's going to be through those vehicles and others that are popping up across the country where this transition is going to take place. Well, Daryl, thank you for that. You know, some companies have kind of already figured out how to get NUCA-like results with their self-insurance plans. They're thinking about healthcare differently, and then they build the structure for increasing the probability of the patterns and behaviors that they need. Ultimately, more and more unnecessary activity and healthcare spending is eliminated and made irrelevant to their cost equation leaving more funds to put towards better health outcomes. So theirs is a health plan that gets smarter every year. And unquestionably, the foundation to plans like these, I think, is primary care. Can you provide our listeners with what large employers are doing to add value-based primary care to their employees through on-site clinics and direct primary care? And how should the primary care community be positioning themselves for aspirational healthcare models taking off in the self-insured marketplace in the years to come? I truly believe if you look at what Nuka did, what Nuka did is they built a relationship-based healthcare system around a massively powerful primary care system. They recognized how important it was to influence people, to take partnership, to walk along the journey with people, respecting their values, respecting their goals, and supporting them along the way to enjoy better health and to take ownership in their own health. Well, that's not going to come through a traditional primary care system where fee-for-service is the name of the game and you get what you do. The more people you see each day, the more money you make, the more RVUs you can bill for, the more money you make. And and quite honestly, primary care has been bought up by the healthcare system as nothing but a funnel. And they hate it. There are not very many primary care physicians that went into business to help people that like being a funnel for the healthcare system. They don't. And many have taken the risk of saying, I'm going to stop doing traditional primary care. I'm going to build a direct primary care practice. And many have built a virtual direct primary care practice or a virtual primary care practice where they say, I'm going to take a subscription model. I'm going to not have 4,000 patients in my practice. I'm only going to have maybe 800. Nuka built theirs around about 1,000 for a team, healthcare team. But I'm I'm going to have fewer people who pay me a monthly subscription And I now have more time to get to know each person. And and a lot of my work with that person, once I get to know them, can be done virtually. 
there's no reason they need to come in and see me for 70% of the visits. The only reason we do that through traditional primary care is because the insurance companies want us to put our hands on them to build. But reality is if you get out of the shackles of the insurance plan system and you simply say, what's the best model to provide primary care? It's that old family medical model. You know, if my dad's a doctor, I'm going to call my dad, even if he lives on the other side of the country. Hey, dad, I'm not feeling well. What do you think I should do? I know you. I trust you. You know me. You know my situation. You're going to give me good advice. Well, that's what direct primary care is built on. I have a relationship. I know my doctor. I can call them. They give me my cell phone. If you talk to the folks at Nuka and you say, what do you like about this amazing healthcare system? Every time you ask anyone, what they tell you is, I have the cell phone number of my team and they're always available to me. And I know that the entire healthcare system is surrounding that cell phone number. And all I got to do is reach out. They're not only proactively helping me to live healthier, but all I got to do is call one of my good friends that I know well, and I have a relationship of trust with those people, and they will represent me to the entire system. They'll bring in the secondary care. Direct primary care acts as the quarterback. We haven't even talked about the fact that the third largest killer in America is medical errors, according to the John Hopkins study. That's terrible. We're killing people because we're not creating a healthcare system around the customer where a primary care physician is playing quarterback and coordinating the care of all the specialists. Because we have all these specialists who don't communicate and use the patient as the primary communicator between the providers, we have all these medical errors happening. So clearly, employers by building into their benefit strategy, a focus of investing in direct primary care, not requiring anybody to use it, just simply giving people the incentive. I'm gonna give you money to use it. You don't have to use it, but pushing people towards that level, whether it's to an onsite clinic, whether it's to an independent DPC, whether it's to a network of virtual direct primary care practices, the most amazing innovative health plans today are the ones that are building on top of this direct primary care model or this virtual primary care model. And they're coming out with prices that are 50% less than your traditional health insurance plans because they're building it on massively powerful primary care, just like Nuka did. I think there's one other thing that we need to be thinking about in terms of primary care, and that's behavioral health integration. And I see this as a a major opportunity. And societally, we've got to find ways to address behavioral health issues coming out of a pandemic, those that have been socially isolating, the compounding issues in our society with the economy and displacement in the workforce and other stressors with people being cooped up in the house. And then you just look at some of the cost drivers that are there and have been readily known for quite some time in healthcare. Behavioral health integration and primary care has an enormous potential for providing cost savings. And the American Psychiatric Association estimated that 26 billion to 48 billion could be saved annually through effective integration of medical and behavioral services, representing a five to 10% decrease in the nation's overall healthcare costs. And, you know, these are really compelling stats. And I know there's still ACOs and other risk-bearing entities that haven't yet fully adopted an integrated behavioral health model. And this is a great opportunity for employers to really help industry solve this problem. And I wanted to ask you, can you provide our listeners with a few examples of more advanced behavioral medical integration that 
leads to both improved clinical and cost outcomes? And what are your views on how the value-based care movement will accelerate the integration of behavioral health in the long term? You know, my background the last 20 plus years has been focused on that. I ran a lot of hospitals. Many of them were mental health. Clearly, of all the risk factors, there's no risk factor that even compares to depression and then controlled stress in terms of producing healthcare costs. They are the risk factors more impactful than any other risk factor. So they, they need to be addressed. And one of my greatest frustrations as I was running these hospitals was, why is it if we know that almost 90% of everything we spend in healthcare can be traced back to people's behaviors. We don't do more to help them change their behavior. It's like, if you really apply Six Sigma, you get to the root of the problem. And we don't do that in healthcare. We ignore, we simply say, I'm gonna create this wonderful treatment plan. I'm gonna give it to the patient. And if they don't, if they don't do it, that's their problem. It's called non-compliance and I'm done. I wash my hands. It's like, wait a second. That's the whole idea of I'm the medical institution. I'm where all the wisdom is. You come to be the benefactor of my great wisdom. And if you want to apply it, that's up to you. I'm sorry. That's got to go away. We have to build a healthcare system where the focus of the providers is balanced with the needs of the members, the customer owners. And there needs to be a tremendous effort and focus on supporting people and making those changes. What good does it do to create these amazing prescription models for patients with these problems if they never take the medication? It's not going to happen. So as I left the treatment side, I built two companies, one that manages population mental health through an ACO type environment where the only way we make money is if we can keep people healthy and the money comes from the fact that they're not going in the hospital. The other company I created was about changing population behavior. And although we kind of merge those into one overall behavioral health, let me divide those up into those two categories and talk a little bit about the secret sauces of how you change each of those areas, both mental illness as well as behavior change. When you look at the fundamental principles of behavioral change, there's really two concepts in behavior that you need to totally recognize. If I give someone an incentive, I can get that person to do a simple task all day long. Almost anything I want them to do, if I simply give them an incentive, they'll go do the simple task. We don't have a problem getting people to do simple tasks. That's not why 90% of everything we spend in healthcare can be traced back to behavior. It's not those simple tasks. It's complex behavior changes, which is the hardest thing there is to do in healthcare. There's nothing more difficult to do in healthcare than to get someone to change a habit and to apply a new lifestyle. Simply saying, as most of the wellness industry, this multi-billion dollar industry that does little more than hand people an incentive to do a simple task and say, gosh, I'm doing my part, we have to implement strategies like Anuka did that said, no, we need to partner with people long-term and partnering with them doesn't mean prescribing behavior change. You cannot expect anybody to go make a lifestyle change because you wrote a prescription and told them to do it. And yet so much of the industry is all about, hey, let's give you an incentive to participate in a challenge or a competition. And hey, here's a treatment plan you should follow to do exercise and nutrition. It doesn't work to change population health. So you have to step back and go, well, what's the other principle of behavior that you have to apply to get it to be done? Well, it's what Nuka did. If you're going to help someone make a long-term change, you have to create a relationship of trust where the person is willing to share what are the ruts that frustrate them the most? 
And it doesn't matter whether it has anything to do with what you want them to do to manage their chronic condition. It has everything to do with helping the person make the change that they're the most frustrated with themselves to make. Regardless of what area it is, finances, jobs, environment, intellectual well-being, nutritional fit, doesn't matter what it is, it's about helping that person, one, build trust, where they're willing to open up about what their frustration is. And I'm sorry, there's nobody on earth that isn't frustrated with themselves over something. We all have a battle going on between our amygdala, which is that part of our brain that we don't reason through, but it has tremendous power over our behavior. It's kind of like when you drive to work and you get there and you go, I don't remember a thing I just did. It's because that amygdala took over. It knows how to get you to work. But your reasoning part of the brain is focusing on that board meeting you've got later in the day. The reasoning part of our brain, that prefrontal cortex, is thinking through the concepts and strategies of the later for the day. Well, your amygdala takes over. Well, therein lies where the battle is. Our reasoning brain says, I want to live healthier. I want to do better. I want to be show more gratitude. I want all these different things we want to do, but our amygdala takes over and we just do what we've always done and we can't get out of those ruts. If you want to help someone get out of a rut, you have to find what their ruts are. And then you have to offer an accountability partner who's not going to shame or blame, but simply support the reasoning part of our brain when those battles. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen when you break it down into small incremental progress and that supporting accountability partner is there on an ongoing basis to support that prefrontal cortex in making that change. That is how we've proven year after year, company after company, you can change organization-wide population health but you have to apply a massive intervention, just like NUCA did, massively powerful primary care where they built relationships with every member, supported them in making those changes. You have to get a majority of the people engaged in that complex behavior change best practice if you're going to change population behavior, which then turns into population health improvement. Now let's address mental health. The biggest black box of mental health is the fact that people don't reach out for help. Studies show that people wait 10 years on average after mental illness symptoms appear before they reach out for help because of the stigma that's associated. And the sad thing is, is that 60% of the people don't ever reach out for help. So yeah, we can implement wonderful mental wellness and mental health solutions, but the big black box is getting those people to address their issues early. And that's what we learned. If you're going to manage population mental health, you got to get early intervention. So one of the strategies is use a non-mental health survey, pulled survey, like a wellness survey that goes out on a regular basis. That's a short little 10-second survey. You don't have to open an app. doesn't come in an email. It just gets texted to you where people simply score themselves in each eight categories of well-being. And now you can be monitoring the population as a whole so that before they ever come up or reach out, you're identifying people. You assign everybody a coach, and when someone is struggling because you're seeing they're struggling with a pulled survey, you reach out, you show compassion, you offer support in that area, you get them into the support and help that they need, and instead of waiting for people to reach out, you create a proactive mental health solution, and you get around the stigma associated with mental health by using a non-mental health survey, and you reach out with a non-mental health provider like a health coach, and then you use that relationship that's built to engage or to be a catalyst of getting people into mental health resources early. And therein lies the secret sauce of how you manage population mental health. And then of course, the other thing that's a secret sauce of managing population mental health is you'll recognize that there are a few people, a very, very small people, one in a thousand who are catastrophic, 
mental health issues that if you stop treating them through the normal process of, okay, here's what your benefit offers, and you simply say, what is it that this person needs? How can we bring all the innovation we know together to support this person? You really proactively manage those really difficult people who represent a very large percent of what we spend in mental health. Carol, that's awesome. And I I really like where you've gone with this. And you've touched on something that I want to explore a little bit further, and that's the individual's capacity to make change. And and I think, you know, we're so early on in the re-architecting of healthcare towards individuals. And one of the elements of that is that healthcare is becoming more consumer oriented. There are countless forces in play due to the technology that's developed over the last dozen years. We've got mobile phones, the cloud, artificial intelligence, and so much more. It seems that no industry can evade these forces and and even healthcare is being caught up in it. However, healthcare is such a heavily regulated, massively subsidized industry that's full of structural distortions and consumerism doesn't seem to drive change here like it does in other industries. So in this era of social media and digital everything, we demand that every other industry serve consumers better, that they react to consumer needs. But consumers haven't realized their place in this and haven't demanded the same of healthcare in the years past. Can you discuss the impact that you're seeing with consumer-facing technologies in healthcare and how will they ultimately redefine the service experience and promote patient accountability for their own health? Will we eventually reach a moment in healthcare where physicians prescribe apps for health and wellness more than they do medications to manage chronic disease? I would love to see physicians spend more time focusing on partnering with people to live more healthy. And there's no question that apps and digital solutions can be very supportive, but keep in mind that personal life is often better influenced through relationships than through technology. And it could be that that relationship comes through the technology, but it's not technology alone that's going to drive change and support people in accomplishing what they want to accomplish. You cannot take the human element out. And and in healthcare, we haven't really brought the human. If you think of your own situation with the healthcare system, is there somebody that you know well, and and, and maybe if you have a a dad that's a doctor or a family member or whatever, that, that may be the case. But in most cases, Healthcare is a bit of a transactional experience and it's very paternalistic. It's all about, you come to me, I'll tell you what to do, go do it. Well, what we need is our healthcare system to be a partner with us where we have a trusting relationship with someone where we know that we can confide in that person and that that person is going to support us. And the technology can be a wonderful resource to drive consumerism and to drive the interaction between the relationship but we cannot take the human factor out of healthcare. And we can't take it out of the future of aspirational healthcare because it's the premise. If you look at the NUCA system of care, they built their system on relationship. In fact, they take the word relationship, they break it into each letter and they talk about what each one represents because it's the foundation of their system is relationship. Technology supports that relationship. Imagine taking care of native Alaskans who are spread across an entire state bigger than the state of Texas. You can't do that in person face-to-face. You have to build technology and you have to build virtual. You know, Technology becomes an incredibly powerful implementer of a relationship-based healthcare system. But it's the relationship that we need to recognize that's the most important thing, not the technology. Well, Daryl, I really like where you're going there. And I love how Nuka built their model on relationships. And a core tenant of that model 
is that patients are referred to as customer owners as they have a role in both the governance of the healthcare organization in the direction and, and individually they have skin in the game for everything to be aligned to promote better health for all. And from a clinical vantage point, Despite a vast coverage area and significant disease burden in that region of Alaska, NUCA has seen a 40% reduction in ER visits, a 36% drop in hospital stays. They have 97% customer owner satisfaction and 95% employee satisfaction. They're also, as I understand, in the 75th to 90 percentile on all the major health quality measures. And this is clearly no flash in the pan. I mean, they've been achieving this level of results for well over a decade. And I wanted to ask you, given the focus on relationships within the NUCA system of care, can you describe exactly what makes that culture so unique and what can other healthcare organizations do to try to replicate that culture of customer ownership in their own delivery model? It's interesting because NUCA has for years been putting on conferences where they invite people from across the world to come learn about what they've done. And having attended one of those conferences, let's say you went to a five-day conference, they will spend two entire days focusing on nothing but how you build trusting relationships. And I love the word they use as kind of their pivotal word to building those relationships, and it's called storytelling. And they go through and they show you how they use storytelling to get people to tell their story. Because when they started their program 20 years ago and they went out to all their members and they said, what is it you want from a healthcare system? The tribal leader said, partner with our people, be influencers on their journey towards improving health and taking ownership, get to know them as people not as patients. I love that direction and the fact that they said, you know, that's what we're going to build. And, and if you look at their story, they'll tell you that they went to their medical teams and said, this is what we're going to do. And they said, that's not how we were trained. We were trained to be diagnosticians and treatment plan people and people that make orders for x-rays and labs. And it's like, well, I love the CEO, Catherine Godley, that said, well, this is what we're going to do. Sorry. We're not changing our direction, which is what we need in healthcare. CEOs, they're like, this is what I want. She demanded that perfect healthcare every time for every person. And she said, okay, then take a hike. Go someplace else. Go work in the lower 48. Because what we're going to do is build a healthcare system around the customer. You know, it was difficult the first few years. That was a major transition. But they found that there were doctors who wanted to be in that relationship with their members. And they wanted to build through storytelling a true connection with their people. And their people love their treatment. I mean, again, I've interviewed people that are in the NUCA system and they've grown up in the NUCA system and, and they love the fact that they know their doctor and they know their doctor's treatment plan, the case, the case manager, the scheduler, the coach, they know the behavioral health consultant, they know those people well, they've been working with them their entire life. They know that those people care about them and they build a system around relationships and they use quality improvement like probably no other organization I've heard that the Malcolm Baldrige people refer to NUCA as not only the organization that have implemented continuous quality improvement better than any healthcare organization, they could very likely be the best organization in any industry that have adopted continuous quality improvement to constantly be looking at how we can better serve our customers, which is why it's such an amazing example for the healthcare industry that has gotten away with never even having to worry about really meeting the customer's needs. Daryl, I, I love where you've gone with this. And, you know, you've touched on a, such a critical element, which is the leadership 
And when I think about the leaders in healthcare organizations, you know, you've got the payer leaders who are under pressure to transform the way that they're paying for healthcare. And then you've got the employer leaders that we've talked about. And I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on what CEOs and other top leaders in these public and private organizations should be thinking about and doing in this new era of post-COVID value-based healthcare. I've always been a huge supporter of Edwards Deming's philosophies of leadership. In fact, I remember when I first went through the training and understanding what servant leadership really meant. A leader's role is largely, again, it's serving customers. And when leaders understand that they have four incredibly important customers that they have to meet their needs of, and they apply best business one-on-one practices to identifying what those needs are, how do they delight that customer, and how do they monitor whether they delight that customer, apply to almost any organization. And those four areas are being a leader to the served, the server, the sender, and the solvency of the organization. What do I mean by that? If your organization, like a healthcare organization, serves patients or customer owners or people out there, that's an incredibly important customer that you want to be focused on, but you can't stop there. You have to balance your efforts to meet the needs of the served, but also the server. The people that work for you, they're your customer, which is why we call it servant leadership. The people who are on your team, they're where the rubber meets the road, and they're a customer, and you need to treat them like a customer, and you need to find out what's going to delight them, and how are you going to monitor whether or not those systems you put in place, those processes with Six Sigma, are meeting that customer's needs. And then you got to meet the sender's needs. That's an incredibly important customer too. Who's sending you business? And what is it that they want? What's going to delight them? And how are you going to put processes in place to delight them? You got to meet all those customers' needs in a balanced way. And finally, the solvency of your organization is a customer. And you have to look out for that because you go out of business trying to meet the first three customers and not have the means, more expenses are going out than revenues coming in, you're not meeting the needs of all four. So the best way to be a leader is to be a servant leader where you recognize the four categories of customer and you balance your processes using Six Sigma, Edwards Deming philosophies of continuous quality improvement to delight the customer, to monitor, see how well you're doing it, and to keep pushing that message over and over and over. Daryl Moon, CEO of Orion, thanks so much for joining us today and having this great conversation on aspirational healthcare. We look forward to seeing you later this month at the Aspirational Healthcare Conference. Are there any other parting thoughts that you want to provide our listeners for the upcoming event? Just that you can learn all about it by going to aspirationalhealthcare.com. And we invite you to come and, and, and learn firsthand from the people who built the best healthcare system in the world. And they're still there and they're gonna be our keynote presenters at the conference.